0: Hi, this is Ben Lowe with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, The Gifts of the Holy Spirit, today with part two, Tongues and Prophecy. So let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, and let's join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: sometimes surprising, even shocking, for people to finally realize the truth of 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. The spiritual gift of tongues is never a subset under prophecy. Tongues is never a message to people. I've been in churches where someone said something which was not understandable and it was given as a tongue. And then someone gave an interpretation. The interpretation was either an exhortation or a word of encouragement or even a rebuke. So what just happened? Well, I don't know. But this I do know. It's not a biblical example of the gift of tongues. The one who speaks in tongues is not speaking to men, says the Scripture. The very nature of tongues is not a subset under prophecy, that is, a word from God to us. Rather, tongues has nothing to do with God speaking to us. Well, we've been studying 1 Corinthians fourteen one to 5 so let me read it. Pursue love, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, this is now part two on tongues and prophecy. I began in my last address to both understand why it is that we should seek spiritual gifts, even though Paul had made it abundantly plain in chapter 12 that the Holy Spirit may not give us the gift that we're asking for. We also notice that the gift of tongues is a subset under prayer. Every single incident of tongues in the Bible makes it a category of prayer, almost always a subcategory under the praise and worship and adoration of God. But when we come to the last part of verse 2, while it seems clear, it can also seem confusing. It says of the tongue speaker, For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. The idea that no one understands seems confusing. Anyone reading this will remember that this seems so different than Acts 2. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, we are told the believers that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues. Then verse 5 says, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then verses 7 to 8 says, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now, we had noted when Acts 2 says that those speaking in tongues were telling the mighty works of God that this was a technical phrase for a declaration of worship of the majesty of God. Declaring his praise is an act of worship, of of adoration, of praise. What is of interest, however, is that those speaking in tongues in Acts 2 seem different, at least at first glance, from the ones in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, where Paul says, no one understands them. In Acts 2, lots of people understood them, so what accounts for that difference? Now, Several solutions have been offered. One solution suggests that the kind of tongues in Corinth was completely different from the kind of tongues in Acts. So there are those who argue that in Corinth, one has what is called ecstatic utterances, simply sounds of ecstasy, no language at all. I mean, after all, Paul says the tongue speaker is uttering mysteries in the spirit. And so it has become common to simply assume that tongues had either morphed in some fashion, making the Corinthian worship one of incomprehensible ecstasy, something very popular among the wider Greek world, or as others argue, that there are in fact two kinds of tongues. The tongues of private prayer language that's available for all believers, and then there's the kind of tongues for public declaration like the ones found in the book of Acts. So here's a simple observation from reading my Bible. The Bible never indicates that there are two different kinds of tongues. No verse can be found to teach such a doctrine, and and furthermore... When Paul explicitly teaches in 1 Corinthians 12.30 that all do not speak in tongues, he doesn't then say, oh, oh, I mean, the public use of tongues as real language, not everyone has those kind of tongues, but but the ecstatic kind, the private prayer language, yeah, everyone has that. No, he doesn't say that. Indeed, 1 Corinthians 12.30 definitely rules that theory out. Notice several unique features around tongues. First, the word tongues in the Greek either refers to your physical tongue, that is that, you know, that piece of your body that's found in your mouth, or it refers to a language. That's it. And by the way, in Older English, we had the very same use of the word tongue. We would say, I'm speaking right now in the English tongue. A tongue is a synonym for a language tongues can also be properly translated as languages the gift of languages now the reason why most Bibles don't translate it that way is because it gets confusing the gift of tongues is not the gift of mastering several languages it is a gift of praying of worship to God suddenly given to you in a language you've not learned now second There's nothing in this text that suggests that Paul believes that tongues have somehow morphed into ecstasy. See, unlike ecstasy, as we'll see later, he believes that the tongue speaker can simply stop any time he or she wants to. He or she is not in some kind of an ecstatic, trance-like state. He is in complete control of this thing. And finally, Paul does clarify some things for us if we peek ahead. So look forward to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 10, and there he says, There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. Here he argues that tongues is used as a language, and furthermore, as real language, it has grammar and syntax and word order and all the various features that make up language. So again... If all we said was gobbledygook ten times very fast, it might sound like something, but it would not be tongues. Tongues is real language. Ah, but why could Paul say that no one would understand this language or this tongue, that it is uttering mysteries in the Spirit? Well, one suggestion is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, where it says, "...if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels." Are there celestial tongues not understood on earth? Well, I guess that's possible. But even if that's what he meant, he would still have been arguing for real language. And by the way, I think the interpretation of angelic tongues is highly unlikely because in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is only speaking about angelic tongues in a hypothetical sense. We're not well served to make a doctrine out of a hypothetical argument. Uh, From my vantage point, the answer to our confusion is actually quite simple. On the day of Pentecost, Luke says that there were at that time devout Jews in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. And so there were plenty of people to understand the various tongues. In contrast, when tongues were spoken in the local church in Corinth, that kind of diversity, with people speaking those vast amounts of different languages, it simply wasn't there in that local church. Hence, what the tongue speaker was saying was not understood. He was uttering mysteries. But this leads us to another question. What would be the value of this kind of activity? Well, look at it from the beginning of verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Now, Is there value in speaking to God? Well, yeah, there is. Now, go to the, the first part of verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. And that would mean that the person speaking in tongues is internally and spiritually strengthened by that activity. See, one of the tragedies I think that has occurred to so many Christians today is that they can't conceive of the element of mystery in prayer. For too many of us, all prayer is cerebral. I mean, I go to God with a shopping list and and plead with him help, and, and for us, that's all that prayer is. It's about what I need from God and about what he supplies. See, it may surprise us to find out that there are many non-intellectual facets to prayer. I mean, consider, for instance, Romans 8.26. There we read, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, please don't misunderstand. Romans 8.26, it's not a description of the gift of tongues but it does help us understand that there are facets in prayer greater than the human intellect. See, in some ways, the Holy Spirit gifts of tongues greatly builds up and strengthens and makes robust and healthy the prayer life of adoration to God in a realm that's not intellectual, but deeply spiritual. We enter into a profound mystery, a mystery of communicating worship to God in ways that our intellect cannot understand, and yet, Our souls are satisfied. I hope that sounds wonderful to you.
0: Recently, Joy, who found us online, wrote to say, I came across Back to the Bible Canada by accident, as it was one of the first sites that flashed up in my desperation to find food for my spirit. Since then, my spiritual walk has never been the same. The teaching of Dr. Newfelt has opened up scripture for me in a way that I've longed for for years, but until now, never experienced. Our goal at Back to the Bible Canada is to ensure that people across Canada are provided the same opportunity as joy. Will you help us provide trustworthy Bible teaching to people who are desperate for spiritual food? If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call
1: 1-800-663-2425. What have we learned up till now? Well, we've learned that tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit that is given to some to assist them in their prayer life, in which they are speaking a real language and thus communicating real thoughts of worship and adoration to God. And while it's encouraging to them, it's not understood by them. It is satisfying, even while their minds have not understood it. Now, as we go through this passage, we'll have so much more to learn about that, but this is foundational. Miss this, and you really miss the rest of the text. Now, I have wanted to speak about tongues and prophecy without controversy. Now, in order to get there... We need not only to understand the gift of tongues, but also the gift of prophecy. So let's see if we can define what Paul means when he speaks about prophecy. Let's reread verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Now in the past, as I've worked my way through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, I've tried to make a distinction between two similar yet very different things. On the one hand, we have the kind of prophets that I call the first order of prophets, who gave us our Bible. When the biblical prophets spoke, they gave us supra-cultural truth. That is, what they gave us escapes its time. It's it's true for all peoples at all times, and in every culture, regardless of your morals or ideas or whatever culture you live in. New Testament prophets were men like John Mark, Luke, James, who ministered under the leadership of the apostles, but who also wrote a part of the New Testament. But then we have a second order of prophets who speak to time-specific things. I call this prophecy with an expiration date stamped on it. This is prophecy that relates to a specific issue. I pointed out that such an example is a man named Agabus, spoken of in Acts 11 and then in Acts 21, in which he predicts a famine in Jerusalem and also the imprisonment of Paul. But there are other examples of that. Listen for instance to Acts 13one 3 There we read, Now there were, in the church in Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now if you know Acts well, you'll know how significant a moment that was. This was the first missionary movement of the church, and this bold venture led the way to global Christianity. And this all began by the Holy Spirit prompting the church to send out Paul and Barnabas. But how did the Holy Spirit say that? Answer, through those who had the gift of prophecy. Now notice what happened. These prophets had a word from God, but the word they had is a distinct word related to a particular church at a particular moment in time. This kind of a word from God is very different, let's say, than Hebrews 1, verse 3, there we read, He that is Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Please notice, that's theological truth. It's an examination of the true nature of the Son. No prophet in the local church of Antioch was doing that. What they were doing is calling the church to respond and send out Paul and Barnabas onto the mission field. See, I hope you see how profoundly different those two things are. I'm arguing that the first order of prophets are foundational and that their work has ceased. They are never to be repeated. But I do believe that the kind of thing that was done in the church in Antioch, that's not foundational, and there is no reason for believing that that kind of activity has ceased. Now let's get to the next point. There are those who think that prophecy as mentioned here, is simply a pseudonym for teaching. That's because verse 3 says that the prophet speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Now, it can be no doubt that these are features in preaching, but there can also be no doubt that the New Testament mentions prophets as a separate category from preaching. Now, listen to Acts chapter 11, 27 to 28. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And then we meet the same Agabus again in Acts 21, where he tells Paul to expect that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be put into prison. This is an entirely different category of giftedness than what Paul mentioned when he speaks about the gifts of preaching and teaching which is a gift of expounding Scripture and helping people understand its meaning and apply it to their lives. So what do we know about prophecy? Well, for one, according to Paul in verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people. Unlike tongues, which is speaking to God, this is speaking to people. And secondly, we also know that prophecy is understood by people. Unlike tongues, which is not understood by people, when God speaks to us, he speaks to us in our native language. God never first gives us strange language. He simply speaks directly. That's what our Bible is, the speech of God in everyday language. Thirdly, we know that prophecy is deeply encouraging to the believer. Remember, we said that tongues greatly strengthens the speaker, but prophecy encourages the hearer. You can hear tongues from someone else, and it will do nothing for you. Indeed, on the day of Pentecost, many people who heard it simply thought the ones speaking were drunk. Paul says if someone comes into a church today, and everyone's speaking in tongues, aren't they going to think you're nuts? Listen, I've been around charismatics long enough, and hearing someone speak in a tongue just does nothing for me. It's not supposed to. But prophecy is different. Listen to the three things Paul says prophecy will do to the hearer. First, it deals with upbuilding. This is a word that can be used in architecture, and it often speaks of building of a house. For instance, Jude uses it when, when we're told to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. The idea is that we're becoming more mature. So, in some way, prophecy provides maturation. Secondly, says Paul, prophecy aids in encouragement. This is an act of emboldening someone in their faith, giving them greater courage to press on. And finally, prophecy consoles those who are grieving. It helps those who are in grief. It shows love and concern for people in a time of need. You know, Acts 15 tells of a time when the early church almost got off the rails. There were some who were teaching that unless the Gentiles are forced to be circumcised and adhere to Jewish dietary laws, they're not going to be saved. If this had been demanded, the entire Gentile mission would have ground to a halt. And interestingly enough, the church did not say, well, you know, we need someone with a gift of prophecy to tell us what to do now. Instead, they studied the scripture and they consulted the apostles and then they came up with the right answer. And with that, the council of Jerusalem sent a letter to the church in Antioch because the church in Antioch was sending missionaries, winning people to Christ around the world. So they put together a letter and sent the letter with Paul and Barnabas and three other men. And then Acts 15 verses 30 to 32 tells us what happened next. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. In other words, these two brothers, Judas and Silas, took the teaching of the apostles and encouraged people around it. Prophets encouraged them to believe the word and rejoice in the word. And that, I think, is the role of a second-order prophet. See, I remember when I was a new believer, how, how a certain woman in my church came and spoke to me. She didn't know how I was struggling with assurance of my salvation, and she simply pulled me aside and she said, John, do you know how much God loves you? I've been sent by God to tell you it's so. Wow! You know, that happened to me over 40 years ago, and it's still precious to me. So now, we have two things, tongues and prophecy, and Paul says, of the two, prophecy is much greater for the mutual benefit of the whole church. Now to verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, when Paul says, I wish you all to speak in tongues, he's not saying that they all would. In chapter 12, he's already indicated they won't. Instead, because in Corinth, they argue about these things. He says, I just wish you all did. But since it's not going to happen, if you're going to be enthusiastic, know this. That prophecy is greater, and the reason is, each one of you should look to build up the local church. Heavenly Father, I pray, would you give us the same heart so that we might lead into building up and encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.
0: John, let me ask a, a pointed question. There, there would be some Bible teachers, reputable Bible teachers, who would say that every form of prophecy has ceased to exist.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so, but I think we're confusing these two different functions. I mean, one is the function of a, a Luke, or a, you know, a John, Mark, or our Apostle Paul, Peter. I mean, these people, by prophetic utterance, gave us the word of God we would never confuse their activity with the activity of Agabus. Agabus speaks to a time-specific issue, does not give us a truth that escapes its time. So, you know, if Agabus is taken out of the picture, no doctrine gets changed, but if Paul's letters are taken out of the picture, everything changes. So I think we need to make a distinction between
0: those two things. Thanks, John. We look forward to more from you tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. we're missing you and the opportunities we have had in the past to meet you face to face, share in times of worship and laughter and the study of God's Word. So enough is enough. Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt are excited to invite you to our 2021 special virtual event called The Gathering, coming on Sunday, September 19th. Enjoy an exclusive message from Dr. John Newfeld hosted by laugh Again's own Phil Calloway and musical guests that will enrich our time together in worship. Last September, people from right across Canada attended online in their offices, homes, on their computers, or even their phones. It was so encouraging celebrating our common passion for the Bible and the significance of teaching biblical truths to a new generation. More information is on the way, so keep an eye out at backtothebible.ca or sign up for the daily audio mail or monthly ministry email update while you're there. Or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.